So we're back in Ephesians after a couple weeks away from it. We're just about at the end. And Paul here concludes his letter with this famous passage about spiritual warfare. And as Bradley talked about a few weeks, that presents some problems for us. It's difficult for us to hear this talk because we live in what some have called the disenchanted age. Talk about demons and spiritual stuff, it seems to come from a different time, from a pre-modern worldview. But I also think it's difficult for us to hear because we might not want to hear that there are real threats and real dangers in the Christian life. We'd rather stick our head in the sands and wish the problems away. That, um, that metaphor, sticking your head in the sands, it, it comes from this idea that ostriches, when they're in danger, will stick their heads in the sand to make it all go away. Turns out that doesn't happen. We're slandering ostriches. Uh, it's only humans that do that. If you ever played hide-and-seek with a three-year-old, you've seen it, right? You count to ten, you say, ready or not, here I come. You turn around, and they're sitting right in the middle of the kitchen floor, completely in plain sight, but with their hands over their eyes. They think if they can't see you, you can't see them, and all is well. And I wonder if we're like that also. Hoping that if we close our eyes, the threats disappear. Today, as we look at this passage on the warfare of the Christian, we need to have our eyes wide open. And one big difference between us and the Ephesian church is I don't think you'd say the same thing about them. I think they knew what they were up against. The church in Ephesus was this tiny, beleaguered, probably oppressed Christian community in a city devoted to the goddess Artemis and preoccupied with all kinds of magical, spiritual, occult forces. They didn't have a disenchanted age. They felt the presence of this. What's more, they were converted by the Apostle Paul, who, as he's writing this, is in prison for preaching the gospel. They worship, we worship, a Lord whose earthly ministry climaxed in crucifixion to be followed by resurrection, but still. So when Paul tells them to stand strong, they know what he's talking about. They fully believe that there's a war underway. They've got a sense of some dark powers at work. We, on the other hand, I suspect, probably need to be more aware of the battle being fought against us as believers. This isn't a call to paranoia, but we need to be aware of what's going on. If we don't, we're just not going to get what this bit of Holy Scripture is trying to do. I, I say that advisedly. What it's trying to do, it's not a bit of abstract theological instruction. If you want to know what the genre of this piece is, it's not a bit of theology, but this is Paul's equivalent, I think, to Churchill's great World War II speech after Dunkirk. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We will carry on the struggle. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. That's what Paul's doing. 
He's doing basically the same thing that Churchill is doing, Paul here at the end of his letter. And that's how I want us to hear it. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to read the passage again. I'm going to paraphrase it a bit here and there. I'm going to supplement with other Bible verses. But basically, I'm just going to read it again so that we can hear it as this call to arms. But before we hear the passage again, I think we need to do three things. First, we're going to briefly look at what Scripture says about this warfare. Second, we need to figure out what are the sorts of things that we need to know about our enemy, the devil. And third, we want to do a reality check. We want to ask, do we actually see any evidence of this? Is this just so much superstition, or is there something really there? So that's what we're going to do. After that, I think then, our ears will be attuned and we'll be ready to hear this passage. And we'll hear how we're to defend ourselves and how we're to fight with the armor of God and with God's armament. So first, what does Scripture say about this war, about this warfare? Well, starting even with our passage in Ephesians, it tells us we're going to have to stand strong with God's strength. We have a fight on our hands, and for this fight, we need defensive armor. We need footwear to bring us into battle. We need swords. You don't wear armor for a chess match, I hope. You don't need a sword for a social gathering. Christianity is not a game, and it's not a club. The passage is saying, the Bible tells us, the Christian life is a battle at war, is a life at war. Paul's saying we need to be prepared for battle. In 2 Corinthians 10, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He then tells Timothy, in 1 Timothy, Wage the good warfare. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's in 2 Timothy. He calls his fellow workers, Epaphroditus and Archippus, fellow soldiers. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight. And he says of himself that I've fought the good fight. So from Scripture, there's not much room for doubt. The Bible telling us that the life of the Christian is a life at war. And here, we call each other brother and sister. I hope we do more so. It's true, it's good. How many of us would think of each other as soldiers? Soldiers fighting alongside each other. That's true, too. We're soldiers together. And, you know, theologians have traditionally referred to the church in these terms. They've divided the church who is still fighting the fight as the church militant. And those who have gone on to, uh, to their reward, who have passed on before us as the church triumphant, we're the church militant. So, we see from Scripture that we're at war, and I realize that raises a bunch of questions. And so we have to ask, what kind of war? Who are we fighting? And so we come to our second point, what we need to know about our enemy. The Christian is engaged in a spiritual war against the devil and against the demonic. At times, theologians will summarize the enemies of the Christian as 
the world, meaning something like the cultural forces at war with God and people at war with God, the flesh, our own sinful inclinations, and the devil. And I think that's a useful summary. Our passage here, though, particularly focuses on the devil, and that's what we are also going to do tonight. Now, when we speak about this, anytime we speak about this admittedly kind of unpleasant topic, we have to always keep in mind that Christ has won the decisive victory against Satan on the cross. Jesus is enthroned in the heavenlies, we read in Ephesians 1 and 2. But Scripture is clear that Satan, though decisively defeated, is not finally destroyed. Not yet. Paul calls him, in chapter 2, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Though defeated, he's not destroyed, and he's a danger to us, to the church. So the primary site of our war is not against our political opponents. It's not against our national enemies. Our battle is a spiritual war. But don't misunderstand that. I fear that when we say spiritual war, we quickly translate that to pretend war. It's spiritual, but it's very real. In spiritual warfare, the stakes are eternal. They're far higher than the flesh and blood warfare that we know is so terrible. As Jesus warned, there are worse things than loss of physical life. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So yes, it's a spiritual war, but that just means it's more serious, not less. I also fear that when we hear that term, we don't take it seriously. We don't take it seriously because we don't really seriously believe that Satan or demons exist. At the beginning of the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis wisely warned that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. He then goes on to summarize, we can err by ignoring the devil entirely, or we can err by having an unhealthy preoccupation with the devil and with the de demonic. We minimize or we obsess. And I've been at churches where people do obsess and see devil or demons under every rock, behind every situation. That's a real problem. I think that's wrong. But that's not my problem. I've always been a minimizer. I don't want to talk or think about Satan. I don't want to attribute anything to Satan. I tend to think that if we talk about Satan and his works, we're really just trying to shift blame away from ourselves. You know, you commit some great sin, and then you say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it is a very old excuse. It goes back to Adam and Eve. In addition, it all sounds like something from a past more superstitious age. Your car broke down because a timing belt broke, not because a demon got in the engine. You got sick because of a virus or bacteria, not because you're possessed. And I think it's generally right to be skeptical about connecting every bad event with satan satanic or demonic influence. 
As one theologian put it, if the devil didn't directly confront Jesus through most of his earthly ministry, he probably didn't orchestrate the loss of your parking spot. Scripture also doesn't tell us to directly confront Satan or demons or learn special exorcism rituals. That's not what spiritual warfare is about. As we see in our passage, and this anticipates the end a bit, actual spiritual warfare is fought in far more ordinary and routine ways. We fight Satan by holding fast to the truth, living righteously, speaking the gospel, pray, hoping in our salvation. Simply, we fight the evil one by living the life of faith together. In fact, I think we should probably read all of the ethical instruction in Ephesians 4 through 6 in this way. Do you want to fight Satan? Love your wife. Treat your employees well. Don't steal, but work with your hands. Speak the truth. Hold fast to the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. Paul doesn't start talking about spiritual warfare here. He's been talking about it all along. So Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We're told that he's a murderer and the father of lies in John 8. But we've also got to remember that God is all-powerful. Christ has won the decisive victory against Satan. We are now called to continue the fight in his power, and we've been amply provided with the defenses and the offensive weaponry that we need by his power. So definitely, let's avoid obsessing. Let's avoid a devil-made-me-do-it kind of attitude. We're responsible for what we do, regardless of influence. We've got to be prepared, and we have to be watchful. Our adversary is dangerous. So then, Scripture tells us first, the church is an army at war. We're soldiers. We're told to fight. And second, we're told that we have an enemy, the devil and those demonic spiritual powers and authorities that he works through. So now for the third part, the reality check. Do we see any evidence of this war? Specifically, do we see any of this war against the church. If it's true that the church is the army of God and that we're waging war against the devil and the spiritual forces of evil, we'd expect to see some evidence of this war focused on the church. So do we? I think we do, and that's a grim topic. I think we need to go into it. But I want to say, again, the end results of this war are sure. We'll one day see absolute and final victory for Christ and his church. If the Christian life is a life at war, it's a war where the decisive victory has already been won. As with World War II, there was a delay between the decisive victory on the beaches of Normandy in 1944 and the final formal surrender of the both, both German and then the Japanese forces roughly a year later. 
So also here, the decisive victory, it's been won. The church is engaged in what some have called the mopping up operation. But we do know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that our Lord, Jesus Christ, is Lord. And victory is even a reality now. We see it clearly on some fronts. We could point to the growth of the church in the Southern Hemisphere or in China, uh, the encouraging renewal of churches in urban centers of which this church is a part. But that won't be the focus. Because I think we do need to have our eyes open to the current struggles. The current struggles, I think, are most obvious where the, the conflict is hottest and where we've taken the most casualties. And if it were a war, we'd expect to see casualties. We'd expect to see compromised forces. We'd expect to see unholy collusion and maybe even enemy infiltration. I think we see all of it. A few weeks back, our family was on a trip in upstate New York. Uh, it's a beautiful area, and we drove through a bunch of small towns, beautiful towns, and all of the towns, virtually all, still had the classic New England church with white clabbered siding, maybe stained glass, and a white steeple. But almost without exception, these buildings now functioned not as churches, but as monuments sort of as gravestones to Christian communities who've long since died out. The church buildings were more typically art galleries, New Age bookstores, yoga centers, restaurants, apartments, almost anything but houses of worship. Even where churches continue to exist, many churches seem to only be churches in name but not reality. They no longer proclaim anything like the gospel of Jesus Christ and no longer truly believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, physically, historically, really, flesh and blood raised from the dead. They continue to exist, but there's not much sign of life in them. The decline of Christianity in the Northeast has been a trend for a long time, but it's accelerated recently, recently meaning the past 25 years ago or so. From 1990 to 2013, the percentage of Northeasterners who self-identify as Christian dropped 20%. At an individual level, we probably don't need statistical evidence. We've probably all known friends who have seemed to be walking a faithful Christian life and then just dropped, up, dropped out, maybe to return, maybe not. In a war, there are casualties, and we see them. We also see compromised forces. Rather than walking into battle and facing, the resi facing resistance, the church, we, are often tempted to fade into the background, blend into the scenery. The evil one tempts all of us, and sometimes we give in to temptation. If our lives are indistinguishable from everyone else's, we can hardly hope to be effective in resisting the evil one. More tragically, we see what I think can only be described as utter betrayal. And I don't think it's too much to think that it's enemy demonic infiltration. 
Over the past few years, we've heard of far too many cases of well-known Christian leaders who have abused their trust and have committed adultery with one or more of the members of their congregation or their co-workers. Even worse, we see another wave of findings of widespread sexual abuse against children and young adults in the diocese, Roman Catholic Diocese of Pittsburgh. We can't sidestep that problem by saying it's a Catholic problem over there. There's only one church, and this kind of evil in any one part of the church is a problem for the whole church. So we grieve for the many people so horribly abused and mistreated by those who call themselves leaders. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11 seem applicable here. At times, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Enough said on that topic. Maybe too much, I don't know. It seems terrible to mention such things, but it seems even worse in this context not to. We're involved in a war and our enemy is still at work. Hearing this, are you discouraged, maybe depressed? This is awful, awful stuff, and I'd rather not talk about it. If you do feel downcast and dejected after considering this, then I think you're probably in the frame of mind that the Ephesians were in. Their enemies seemed so formidable. They knew that Paul was in prison, and to them and to us, Paul speaks these words of truth in Ephesians. And I want to paraphrase and summarize some of what we've already heard in these past six chapters of Ephesians to encourage them so that we'd be encouraged. Paul tells them this tiny, struggling community, though your struggles may seem fierce, remember that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You're in Christ. You are already experiencing that resurrection power from the one who loves you. Be bold. He will make you strong. Though your enemies may seem strong, remember that God's power is at work in all of us who are in Christ. And that's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead and put him above all the enemy's spiritual rulers, powers, and authorities. So you don't serve them anymore. You now serve Christ. And you're already seated with Christ above those power. God's power is at work in you, and so you don't need to fear anybody. More than that, you, church, were part of God's plan all along. You were not a last-minute adjustment. God's loved you from before time. He pursued you up to death, Christ did, and beyond because he loved you so much. Even now, Christ is working in you to make you 
glorious and holy. And do you think anything, anything human or subhuman, can prevent him from having you as his own, as his bride forever? As Christ has been victorious, all those who are in Christ will be able to stand and remain standing to the praise of his glory. Do not fear, Christ has overcome the world. What then would it look like if we as a church congregation, and if the church in New England more generally, fought these battles with more awareness, with more vigor, with the power of God? Well, it would look like the church being the church, being the body of Christ, the church being the temple built up as the visible manifestation of the presence of Christ on earth. It would be a people united together in Christ, loved by God, loving each other, gathering together for song, hymns, spiritual songs, joined together as a forgiven people who are quick to forgive, striving together in prayer. Soldiers, fighting side by side for the gospel with hope in the victory, the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that sense, when we gather together for worship week by week, we're joining for battle. Our praise to God is at the same time an act of war against his enemy and our own. We have to hold two things together in our minds. First, we have a fearsome enemy. Second, if we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear. We need to hear Paul warn us that let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall and also hear him reassure us that the servants of the Lord will stand because the Lord is able to make them stand. If God's for us, who can be against us? So then, I want to finish by reading our passage again. As I said, this isn't going to be verbatim. I'll read it and then I'll expand with other Bible verses, hopefully to make the sense clearer. My hope is that we can now hear this as what it is, a call to arms. So then, hear this call to arms given to all of us who are soldiers of the cross. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the strength of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is named. If the battle were under your own steam, simply by your own determined will, it would already be lost. But it's not. If you're in Christ, you have the tremendous resurrection power of God working in you. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against the deceitful schemes of the devil. No longer be children tossed to and fro by every new fad or trendy idea. Satan's a deceiver. He's the father of lies, so hold fast to the truth. 
Put your hope in the God who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our fight's not with the hostile powers that be, those earthly powers, but the powers behind the powers. No earthly ruler, no matter how bad and how seemingly powerful, is as consequential as that battle. Our battle is against the spiritual powers of darkness of Satan and of his demons that pull the strings. That's where the key fight is, and for that fight... We, the army of God, need spiritual armor and spiritual weaponry. So then, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. In this letter, you've heard how you must walk. You must walk in good works. You must walk worthy of your calling. You must walk in love. You must walk as children of light. You must walk not as unwise, but as wise. But when you face resistance from the enemy, you must stop walking. You must plant your feet firmly on the ground and take a stand. Stand up to the devil, resist him. Then keep fighting as you fight the fight of faith. And when all is said and done by the power of God, you will stand strong. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's how you must defend yourself, how you must fight. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. As your enemy is the father of lies and the slanderer, you must fight him by being people of truth, people who love truth. God's word is truth. Our Lord Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Put off falsehood and speak this truth. Proclaim that Jesus Christ is king over all powers and speak the truth to one another in love and you will stand. Stand and put on the breastplate of righteousness. Trust in the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who loves you, who's making you holy. Put his words into practice and you will stand. Stand with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. As Jesus preached the gospel of peace to those who were near and those who were far, to Jew, to Gentile, to slave, to free, so also go forward into battle proclaiming the gospel of peace. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. In all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. He's an accuser. He's a slanderer. When the evil one accuses you, reminds you of your sin, tempts you to doubt the love of God, respond as Martin Luther did. He said, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, 
and where he is, there I shall be also. And take the helmet of salvation. When you become weary in the fight, be hopeful. Knowing that your God is powerful to save. And know that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So be of good cheer. Keep awake. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Stand with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. As Jesus fought Satan in the wilderness with the word of God, so be ready to fight with that same weapon. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Feed yourself with God's, God's word and arm yourself with it. You'll be well fed and well armed for the fight. Read your Bible. Meditate on it, pray it, memorize it, and you'll be prepared to resist the deceitful schemes of the devil. Rejoice always. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The pastor John Piper writes, Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Pray. Pray that God would strengthen you. Pray that God would give his church victory over his enemies and ours for his glory. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Amen.